bards. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of being here this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for giving us the inspired, God-breathed word of truth. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your love. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us here this evening for one reason or another. Our hearts go out to them. Uh, we want them to know that we're praying for them for their return someday soon. Your will be done. Father, we pray for those that are still lost. And we are most grateful and thankful for your son's work on the cross to make a an evening like this of rejoicing uh, reality for us. May we never become familiar with it. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Again, it's part 27 of Proverbs 17, Wisdom. Uh, do me a favor up here on the board, if you haven't already done so, uh, read this blog. Uh, it's, it's really imperative um, based on the messages as of late. Um, like I mentioned on Sunday, some people, actually half the people that wrote to me about it said they were, had to read it more than once uh, just to sort of get it. And so that means that there's a lot there. Um, you know, it's not always a connect the dots or color by numbers. Right? Sometimes you actually have to think. You actually have to read it more than once. You have to give yourself time after you read it. You shouldn't just you know, be doing this you know, just to get through it. It should be uh, thoughtful. It should be prayerful. And there should be time spent on it at some point while it's still fresh in your mind. So please read it. Um, and if you have any questions about it, feel free to email me. Um, I love to answer questions about the blogs. Uh, here's an excerpt uh, from that blog, by the way. It's actually the last statement in the blog, fear and faith. I don't have all the answers, but I do know that a person who doesn't fear the Lord cannot possibly have genuine faith in him. Those are mutually exclusive things. If you don't fear him, you cannot have faith in him. There has to be Fear, that is the very beginning of it all. So says Holy Scripture. And the greater the fear, of course, the greater the faith. And so as we're sanctified, we fear him even more. We hold him in higher regards. We have a greater level of reverence for him. And as that transpires, as we're sanctified, um, our faith increases. So we have our greatest faith in the things we fear the most would be a way to summarize it. So the running principle uh, behind the scenes, if you would, uh, over the past few messages in that blog, is that fear of the Lord is tantamount to faith in the Lord. Fear of the Lord is tantamount to faith in the Lord. Furthermore, the spirits pointed out, uh, fear relates to power in the following way up here on the board. What about the origins of fear? I mean, if fear leads to faith, if they coexist, uh, 
Um, what about fear? What might we say about the origins of fear? Well, here's one way to think about it. If we believe others have power over us, we fear them. And when they issue commands, we obey. We obey because we have a certain fear of that uh, power in our lives. Likewise, if we believe God has power over us, we fear him, and therefore we obey his commands. And we got or gained some encouragement on this from Holy Scripture last time. Let's go to Romans 8.31 again. Romans 8.31, where we can collect our thoughts again. Um, just some encouragement from Sunday's message, I believe. Romans 8.31 Again, it's just about power systems. Sometimes we just have to think simply, right? Romans 8.31. I mean, who's the most powerful in our lives? And that's at the center of Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Rhetorical question, right? I mean, who can be against us if the omnipotent God the holy, perfect, sovereign God of the universe, the creator of the universe, is for us, that person. I mean, who can be against us? Up here on the board, just a little more color on if God is for us, who can be against us? It's also translated, since God is for us. Gives us a little bit more clarity, right? Since God is for us, who can be against us? Because it is, as believers, a foregone conclusion we find our sense of security in those we believe are the most powerful. It is why we tend to submit out of fear to perceived power, regardless if it's godly or not, even. I mean, that's that tug of war, right? That's that tug of war like we, we see hints of it in Romans 7. Um, we don't have perfect faith because we don't have perfect fear. And so there's always that sort of power struggle. And if we don't fear God, well, what's left? We fear man. Um, and we tend to submit out of fear to whatever that perceived power is in that moment uh, of time, regardless if it's godly or not. Regardless if it's godly or not. That's why if we take our marching orders from man, from the world system, we veer off the 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 way that leads to life, right? We veer off of God's plan for us because we have a certain fear and respect and reverence and therefore obedience to and faith in something or someone other than God. And that's that power system. And that's all the Spirit's been saying um, if we're to trace it out, right? So again, it's why we tend to submit out of fear to perceive power regardless if it's godly or not. If we righteously fear God's power, then we are ever secure. Again, look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's a good question, right? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, he says, Paul writes, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. In all these challenges, any, you know, it's like any challenge, you know, it's like the, the tough guy that stands. Any, you know, any challenges, anybody want to take me on? In all those challenges, we conquer. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Whew, right? Amen. Who is going to come? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. Again, the point on the board. We find our sense of security in those we believe are the most powerful. And we submit to that perceived power, regardless if it's godly or not, if we righteously fear God's power, then we are ever secure. Who can be against us? That's the point. And that really does uh, resonate very well with our primary course of study in Proverbs 17. Go there now. Proverbs 17, verse 4. Proverbs 17, verse 4. We're just going to jump right in. Still got a little bit more work to do on verse 4. The Spirit has just a tad more to say on verse 4. Uh, and then we're going to go to verse 5 tonight. Verse 4, Proverbs 17, verse 4. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. The statement, if God is for us, who can be against us, is a rhetorical question, of course. We just noted that. It is a rhetorical question. As we've been learning, our confidence in such a statement is based on fear. So you think about words like fear and power and respect, faith, confidence, all these words. All of these things are intrinsically related. Intrinsically related. That's why I would, I would guard your souls, guard your, your minds uh, against the... Um, the uh, notion of trying to order these things. I think that's somehow you can get tripped up. You know, well, this one proceeds this one, and then that one comes, and then this one comes, and that. That's being a little bit hyper-doctrinal. You're getting a little bit too tangled up. These things exist in the sphere, the divine sphere of God, right? Uh, one way that I like to teach it is two sides of the same coin. If I throw you a coin, you're going to get a heads, and you're going to, you can't just say, well, I got a heads, that's it. No, you got the whole coin, which the tails comes with it. And that's like fear and faith. It's, it's two sides of one coin, right? One doesn't have to precede the other. I might throw the coin, it lands on heads, right? And you say, oh, see, heads, you know, fear precedes the other side, faith, because there it is, heads first, I flip it over, it's faith. Well, what if, I, if, what if it landed on tails first? Well, faith came first, then it's, you know, the other side. So it's, 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 it's a package deal. All these things are intrinsically related, and we find them unified 
in this divine sphere of God. That's how I would like uh, you to think about it. Don't do that thing to yourself where you're hyper-concerned about ordering things that way. Um, Think of God. Remember, God is not bound by such constructs. He's not even bound by time. And so the idea of precedence, you know, one preceding the other, doesn't really exist to God. It just is. Um, I know that's a brain cramp. Up here on the board, hence principles like this, the origins of fear, it's on the premise of perceived power that our fear even develops. And to extrapolate that principle a little further, we say up here on the board, we have confidence in the things we fear the most. This is evident, going back to our primary course here, this is evident in our current verse in our main passage. Look at verse 4 again. An evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar gives ear to, mischie- to a mischievous tongue. We have, we have confidence in the things we fear the most. And we've studied this out. Who does the evildoer fear? Up here on the board. Whom do you fear? Whom do you fear? Up here on the board. An evildoer fears man more than God. That's his nature. And that's why he lends his ear to man. An evildoer fears man more than God. Conversely, a doer of the word, a la James 1.22, which is the opposite of an evildoer, fears God more than man. And that was really our summary. And that about finishes up our work in verse 4. So on Sunday we began looking at the next verse. Look at verse 5 now. So we'll slow down a little bit. Whoever mocks, and I gave you a little bit more clarity from the original language, deride, uh, express contempt for, ridicules. That's what's impregnated into the original language that translates mocks here in the English Standard Version. Whoever mocks, derides, expresses contempt for, ridicules. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is uh, glad at calamity will not go unpunished. And so you've got this sort of um, dynamic going on again where uh, you've got an individual who apparently, as we'll consider this evening, doesn't fear God. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Here's a couple of supporting passages up here in the board. Proverbs 14, 20 to 21. I'll give you the Amplified Classic. We looked at the uh, English Standard Version on Sunday. This is the Amplified Classic. The poor is hated even by his own neighbor, but the rich has many friends. He who despises his neighbor sins against God, his fellow man, and himself. But happy, blessed, and fortunate is he who is kind and merciful to the poor. I hope you, I hope you see that second part there. I hope you see verse 21. 
Let's read it again, though. The poor is hated even by his own neighbor, but the rich has many friends. He who despises his neighbor sins against God, his fellow man, and himself. But happy, look at this, blessed and fortunate is he who is kind and merciful to the poor. In other words, the blessing is yours when you are not this person. It's more blessed to be the other person, the opposite of the evildoer, the opposite of the one who mocks a poor person. The blessing is, in, is on your lap when you're that person versus the other. And then the second verse in the Amplified Classic, Proverbs 14.31, reads, He who oppresses the poor reproaches, mocks, and insults his maker. But he who is kind and merciful to the needy honors him. Again, he who oppresses the poor reproaches, mocks, and insults his maker. But he who is kind and merciful to the needy honors him. Again, uh, you guys still in Proverbs 17? Okay, verse 5. So bringing it back to verse 5. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Up here on the board, mocking the poor insults God. Why would you ever, why would anybody, what's the motivation of a person who mocks somebody that's going without something, that's poor, that's struggling um, in some way? And, it, you know, we immediately think of finances. That's a perfect uh, the easiest one, the layup, if you would. But it doesn't have to be. I was talking to someone this week. It doesn't have to be just finances. They could be poor in spirit. They could be depressed. They could be broken. Do you kick somebody when they're down? Do you, do you mock them? Do you, you know... Again, up here on the board, mocking the poor insults God. To mock the creature is to insult the Creator. For it is the Creator who made the creature. It's, it's like God going, hey, look, at I made this thing. What do you guys think? Boo! <laughs> but God made it. That means it's perfect. You don't boo God. Right? You don't make fun of it. Oh, look at it. What? Couldn't you do better than that, God? I mean, don't some of us have that conversation with Him ourselves? God, couldn't you have done a little better with this? Or this? You know, or whatever it is that you're complaining about. This? I don't know. Couldn't you have done a little better? You're mocking him. You're mocking him. And to mock the creature is to insult the creator, for it is the creator who made the creature. Psalm 139, 14, Isaiah 44, 24. Let's see those passages through the eye gate. So go to Psalm 139.14. Psalm, just a friendly reminder. It's a familiar passage. But nonetheless, it's worth looking at, remembering, dwelling on. Psalm 139.14. Again, mocking the poor insults God. And you lose. Remember, the blessing goes to the other person, the one who helps the needy. Psalm 139.14 I praise you 
For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. You see, you can almost, you can hear in a poetic sense the jubilation of the writer, of the psalmist. Can you not? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Well, I'm a work of your hand. You're my creator. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My soul knows it very well. Isn't that just beautiful? That's a beautiful perspective on self. Go to Isaiah 44, 24. Isaiah 44, 24. Again, we're just establishing that he is our creator. And that there's a certain perspective we need to keep very close to us. Isaiah 44, 24. Isaiah 44, 24 reads, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. He made you, he made the heavens, he made the earth. He formed you, he formed all of us, every human being in all of human history in the womb, except for Adam and Eve. Right? Except for them. You and I were formed in the womb. He's the one who formed us there. And we are, as we noted earlier, wonderfully made. Huh. Again, the point we're developing is mocking the poor insults God. To mock the creature is to insult the creator. For it is the creator who made the creature and the life of that creature, and so on and so forth. And from Sunday's message, the Spirit gave us a simple fact, that God is the perfect chooser. God is the perfect chooser. He's ordained all there ever was or will be, which includes every life that's ever lived. In fact, he is the source of all life. If we want to get right down to brass tacks. So it is fundamentally insulting to the holy, perfect God of the universe, the creator of all things, to question his decisions. That's the point. It's fundamentally insulting. He is holy. That word, I don't know about you, but over the last few years has just grown into something huge in my own soul. The idea of holiness, it's, it's, it's bigger than our finite brains can, can wrap around. Just think of him that way. He's perfect, infinitely so, from our perspective. He's perfect. He's holy. We can do holy things once in a while, right? But that's about as good as it gets. We can't even fathom what perfect holiness actually is. It's, it's this way, you know, it's expansive in every direction without end. It's perfect. So it's incredibly insulting to him, the holy, perfect God of the universe, to question his decisions. Go to Romans 9.20. Romans 9, verse 20. 
Romans 9, verse 20. Again, it's fundamentally insulting to question his decisions. Look at verse 20. He says, but who are you? I love this. I like, I like when the Bible asks questions like this. Because there's really not a whole lot of escape. Right? Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Ooh, right? There's really no escape. He's got you in his cross. It's almost like he says, hey, come here for a second. I'm going to put you, like, right in front of me. He's going to... Grab your shoulders like this. You know what I'm getting at? He's going to look you in the eye and go, who are you? There's no escape. You're just like sitting there. Obviously, I forgot who I was. That's the point. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? The audacity, right? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Listen, God has never once made a mistake. Never. Not once. You might say, ah, I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know. I think he screwed up in my life a couple of times. I would, have been, you know, I would have come to Jesus a lot sooner if I didn't have this moron for a parent or parents. No, you wouldn't have. No. God's timing is perfect. His way is perfect. You had to go through everything you had to go through to get to where you are right now. That's the point. And you may think you know better, but you don't. He's never made one mistake. The reason you're sitting here right now is because of... Go ahead, rattle it off. Rattle off all your, your reasons for being guilt-ridden, right? Which you'll get over eventually. Right? Rattle them off in your soul. All those things got you here this evening. Every last one of them got you here listening to this message this evening. Got you saved. All I know is what the Bible says. The Bible says God has never made a mistake, ever. He's the perfect chooser. And so he does choose some rich and some poor. But as I've taught you in the past, you know, each one comes with its issues. Both of them have a test. If you're you're rich, you've got to struggle against being a pompous jackass and turning your nose down and being the one who mocks the poor, right, and puffing yourself up. That's a test in itself. You could be miserable just because of that, because the Bible says you are not blessed if you're that person. Or, not to just pick on them, you could be on this side, and that's a test of itself, and you live in jealousy or whatever. It festers, and now you just spend all your time, you know, gnawing at people with money, and you don't even think about the fact that they're miserable too. You understand? But God put each one in its place, each person in those lives for his own purposes. I don't know what they are. I mean, I know what in my life. I mean, I don't know. I guess, I I mean, it took me like 30 years to actually get my act together with Christ. Arrogance, I guess. I don't know. 
On Sunday, we read the beginning of the Beatitudes, taking special note on how Jesus opened up the passage. Go to Luke 6.20. Luke 6, verse 20. Just to get an idea of the mind of Christ, right? That this, although the writing, right, the, the, the scripture is ancient from our perspective, it's literally no different from his. We're going to delve into that a little bit this evening. Luke 6.20, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. In other words, this isn't a novel issue. Just endure it. I'm asking you to endure it. Verse 24, he turns the tables. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And I hope you understand the way he's speaking. He's not saying if you're poor, you're absolutely this way, or if you're rich, you're absolutely that way. He's describing the general characteristics of the rich and poor during that time and the oppressive nature of that dynamic between them. He's not saying if you're rich, you, could, you can't get in. He did say, though, it's really hard. It's as hard as getting a camel through the eye of a needle, right? So it's really hard. It's a test on its own. But he's not, it's not a blanket. He's generalizing, you see? He's saying, if you're in this camp, woe to you. If you're in this camp, you're blessed. That's all he's saying. If we're to translate that for a message like this one, you know, it seems quite apparent that Jesus had a personal problem um, with those we are contemplating this evening as mockers, the mockers of the poor. Uh, he had a real problem with them. And he despised them, he despised the whole thing even more because they were hypocrites. Because they, they weren't just that way. They also postured themselves as righteous in other words, they wanted it all. They were greedy. And he said, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. So he really did have a personal problem with that category of people that we've got in our crosshairs this evening, the mockers of the poor. And we received a friendly reminder on Sunday of the following up here on the board. The mind of Christ... The Bible as a whole. So we just read the Beatitudes, right? And you say, all right, Jesus said it, you know, like right here. Um, and, you know, this is, this is all he ever really said about this, this mockery thing, blah, blah, blah. No. No, 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 no. You want to understand the mind of Christ, you understand this right here. The Bible as a whole is the very mind of Christ. We have to think that way. We don't just hear, quote-unquote, from Jesus Christ when we read red letters in our Bibles. The Bible is his word. 
his mind, his thoughts, his heart. The whole of it, all of it. That's why there's perfect synchronicity, if you would, or harmony between Old Testament, New Testament. So this means that if we take note of something Jesus is recorded as saying, say, in one of the Gospels, like we just did in Luke, we can assume, listen, we can assume that whatever he said is perfectly harmonized with the rest of the Bible. Perfectly harmonized with the rest. And if it's not, the best I can tell you is you're missing something. That's the best I can tell you. If it's not harmonized in your own soul, you just don't understand something right or just yet. But what we do know as a matter of fact is that God is not a God of confusion. Amen? So if it's in the Bible, it's not there to confuse us, it's there to educate us. And if you are confused between something you see in the New Testament, something Jesus said versus something in the Old Testament, um, then keep reading your Bible and keep praying on it and pray for faith and pray for understanding. And you'll see eventually that it all harmonizes. That's what he's been doing in this ministry, folks. Honest to goodness. Has not everything become more and more simple? Right? Why is that? Because what's happening is he's harmonizing all of Scripture. He said, you know, that warning I gave you earlier about trying to organize, you know, things serially and doctrinally. That's why you were confused all those years. It's because you're all mangled and stuck like the Pharisees were. Right? Nothing added up for you because you made it complicated. If you understand that the whole Bible is perfectly harmonized, the very mind of Christ, you realize you could go to Genesis and say, that sounds just like Jesus. <laughs> right? That's the heart of Jesus on full display. There he is right there. And then you go to Revelation, and it's the revelation of Jesus, right? And there he is again. At the end of the... And then you go to one of the Gospels, and there he is in the red letters. As a human being, there he is, acting, applying what we just noted in Genesis and Revelation, and there he is acting it out and being the manifestation of the word. That's how it's becoming so simple. That's how you read your Bible. It's actually an easy concept. Um, it's just, you know, it's difficult because we, we bring so much baggage to the table or we've got old religions we're trying to shed um, stuff like that. But nonetheless, we can assume that whatever he says in the red letters, let's say, it's perfectly harmonized with the rest of the Bible. In other words, we might read a story in the Old Testament, you know, learn a lesson from it or glean some, some doctrine from it. And then the very next day, we might read some red letters. And it's just Jesus applying that doctrine in a situation. That's all. So I want to look at another example in, in Holy Scripture just to drive this principle home. The idea of the, the harmony between, you know, every portion. I, I used to just categorize Old Testament, New Testament. No, everything. Jesus' words, what Paul wrote, uh, you know, on behalf of the Spirit of Christ, what was written in the Mosaic Law or the, um, the Pentateuch, right? In the law itself, all of that stuff that happens to be in the Old Testament. Um, from God's perspective, it's just a revelation of his mind, of Jesus' mind, right? Timing, who cares? It's situational. 
The, 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 the stories we read, they're just situational. Different eras, different application of the same mind. And people will get way, way cockeyed because they're trying to be like a Pharisee. Go to Exodus 20, verse 8. Exodus 20, verse 8. And they end up suffering. So we're just going to develop this thing, okay? Just almost stepping aside for a moment. The Spirit just wants to say, hey, check this out. The very mind of Christ, right, is throughout the entire Bible. I'm going to use one of the Ten Commandments, that is the Sabbath. Okay? Exodus 20, verse 8. He said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay? So that's one of the Ten Commandments. It was given as part of the Mosaic Law. So those Jews that were under the law, they said, okay, it's a command. Okay? All right, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. So this is one of what we would call the Ten Commandments, as we know, which originally were set for during the times of the Mosaic Law. The Jewish leaders had made the Sabbath part of a religious works program, though. Do you see? They made it something it was never meant to be. Now think of the mind of Christ. Okay? Think about why he gave them that command in the first place. It was, it's twofold, but I'll let you work it out in your own soul. Um, nonetheless, the Jewish leaders had made the Sabbath part of a religious works program, which ultimately became the opposite of God's intended result. Sabbath means rest. <laughs> but if it becomes part of a works program, what, did, what is it implied? It's a work. Now I've got to work to keep this religious thing going. It enslaved those it was meant to give rest to. In fact, by including the Sabbath into a false religion, the Sabbath was actually work to keep. It became work to actually keep something that was supposed to provide rest. So let's read another Old Testament passage. Remember, we are always reading the mind of Christ. Okay? Deuteronomy 23, 24. Go there. Deuteronomy 23, verse 24. So in context, we have a command. You know, keep the Sabbath holy. One of the Ten Commandments. Okay. But there's a context there. Mosaic law, right? Deuteronomy 23, 24. This is um, still, again, the mind of Christ. If, Deuteronomy 23, 24, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. In other words, take only what you need, okay? So you can eat as much as you want, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. In other words, just take what you need for sustenance, okay? If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Again, the same principle. Again, this means that the farmers were instructed to share the produce with the people who needed it to eat. I mean, you don't want somebody dying on the side of the road 
because you won't share. That's the point, okay? But the people were not to take the farmer's produce, you know, store it up for themselves. Yeah, I'm just going to go round and round. God said I can go round and round and take whatever I want. No, he didn't. It's take what you need. I said I would provide. I didn't say I, could let you, I want you to be a glutton. I didn't say I want you to capitalize on, you know, taking from your neighbor. So don't pile it up for yourself and don't sell it for profit later. So there's another part of the mind of Christ. All right, now let's fast forward to the New Testament. Go to uh, Mark 2.23. Mark 2.23. So we go forward, and we're going to see some red letters now. But what is the Spirit saying? He's saying it doesn't matter where you are in Holy Scripture, it's always the mind of Christ functioning. Do you understand? Mark 2.23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. Huh, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the, on the Sabbath? In other words, why are they working? Why are they, why are they gathering food? That, in an agricultural society, that would have been work, right? Why are they working, in other words, on the Sabbath? And by the way, when they say lawful, they're talking about it from their religious standards, not God's. Okay? That was not the mind of Christ. That was an affront to a religious perversion of the Sabbath. That's that flip. So verse 25, and he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not, you know, using their language again, lawful but for any, or, but any, for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Have you not heard that story? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So in other words, I want to set this record straight. Jesus was pointing out what we just learned in the Old Testament. And you know, his words are perfectly harmonious with his words in Exodus and Deuteronomy. In fact, one might rightly argue that the Sabbath, as it exists in the Old Testament, now this is making it applicable for us, it's not even applicable for us in the church age. Consider the fact that we aren't under the law anymore because Jesus abrogated it, did away with it, um, fulfilled it perfectly on our behalf. It's why we don't practice Jewish customs like not eating certain foods that were forbidden under the Mosaic law. And I don't know about you, but I haven't sacrificed any animals on an altar Right? Or any of that stuff. Why? Because that was part of the Mosaic Law. What we do observe, what we do do, is observe the mind of Christ. So, when it comes to the Sabbath, specifically, Jesus set the record straight when he said, look at verse 27 again, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. <clears throat> In other words, it was meant for a rest, to be a rest for you. It was also a test. 
Um, but it was to be a rest for you, not man for the Sabbath. It's not a works program, in other words. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus called out the distorted religion that used one of the Ten Commandments as a whip. He took something that was supposed to give rest and turned it into a works program, the opposite of rest. And just as a sidebar, interestingly, of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is the only one that isn't repeated in the New Testament under the premise of grace. So one might rightly argue that it's not for us today. There's not a day that you technically can't work on. That's not even given to us. Go to Colossians 2.16. Look at Paul wrote in Colossians 2.16. I mean, if you want to rest on a Sunday, that's cool. Right? You want to rest on a Saturday, that's cool too. But there's no, it was, it's not given to the church age. Right? So you shouldn't be going around to people saying, hey, why, why'd you work today? You're supposed to take a Sabbath. It's Sunday. It's supposed to be a Sabbath day. It's Sunday. If you want to do that, that's fine, and it's good with the Lord. That's cool, too. But it's not a whip, and we're not even under that. That was the Mosaic Law. Look at Paul wrote in Colossians 2.16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a what? A Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, I got rid of all that stuff. You are not under the law anymore. Up here on the board, the church age, that's us. We're the church. Christians are never taught to keep the Sabbath. Now, I think a lot of Christians are confused about this. Honestly, I think a lot of them are. Why? Because a lot of, especially around here, a lot of people are ex-Catholics. And they're hyper-religious. Right? And they've got... Sunday, although they break their own ridiculousness. But anyways, there's a lot of this garbage going around. And again, the disclaimer is, it's not that you can't take a Sabbath, <laughs> a rest. I mean, you deserve a rest. If you work hard, you should rest. But it's not mandatory law that we're under. We are under the economy of grace, not the law. If we need to rest, it's a matter of integrity to the likes of this New Testament verse up here on the board, Colossians 3, 23 to 24. Here's the kind of law we're under. We're under the law of love, right? We're in the economy. You might, some call it the dispensation of grace itself. Different economy. Colossians 3, 23 to 24. I'll give you the amplified. Whatever you do, whatever your task may be, work from the soul. That is, put in your very best effort. Okay? Any questions? No, for real. Put in your very best effort. It's actually a higher calling, when you think about it, than the Mosaic Law. Right? They could, I mean, technically, you could kind of like skate a little bit during the week and then still get the Sabbath. Get what I'm saying? We're under a different law. We're under the law of love. I want to I be pleasing to my Lord. I'm in, the, I'm in the, the economy of grace. He gave me so much that it, it should flow through me, right? And I should work. What is it? This is the Bible. This is not Ed Collins, right? This is the Holy Bible. 
This is the mind of Christ. He said, whatever you do, whatever your task may be, work from the soul. That is, put in your very best effort as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing with all certainty that it is from the Lord, not from men, that you will receive the inheritance which is your greatest reward. It is the Lord Christ whom you actually serve. It's very different, isn't it? That, that different kind of mindset. It's the grace mindset. Okay. Again, if we need to take a Sabbath, a rest, then we do so with integrity to the Lord. What do you say? Whatever you do, whatever your task may be, work from the soul. That is, put in your very best effort. Okay? You stand before the Lord. And you have to answer to him. You have to confess. Yes, Lord, that was my very best effort. And in that economy, he says, great, take a Sabbath. Take a rest. You got to rest up, my child. <laughs> but if you cannot do that, what about your integrity? Honestly. Right? What if, you know, I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud now. What if the whole week you were a slacker? And then, you know, you always take Sundays off, let's say. You always, Sunday's your impromptu, your, 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 your Sabbath, whatever, right? But you slacked off all week, right? Maybe you should work that Sunday. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm not saying you're on a works program. You know what I'm getting at, right? You, you know... Anyways, I don't want to, if I say any more, people are going to be like, what's he saying? I'm trying to make a distinction in your soul. I'm trying to say that, listen, we serve him. We do our best for him. We don't need him to tell us to take a, 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 a we don't need him to tell us to do certain things. We want to do certain things. And when we do certain things for him, we get exhausted. And he says, go ahead and take a break. That's integrity to the Lord. We work hard for him first, then we rest. We work hard for him first, and then we rest. That's very different than a mandatory rest as part of the Mosaic Law, let's say. We don't have time to dig our heels into this completely right now, but suffice to say that Jesus' words to the religious Pharisees in Mark 2 we're in perfect accordance with his mind as it is captured in the Old Testament. Remember that the Mosaic Law was simply to show man that he'd never be able to keep it. So that's where it gets a little complicated for some people, especially newer believers. If you don't understand, you know, the age of the Mosaic Law and that they were under, you know, a different economy, uh, they were under the Mosaic Law, um, so if you're new, don't sweat it. Uh, just go with it for now. But nonetheless, the Mosaic Law was there to show man that he'd never be able to keep it. I mean, who can, who can honestly say you've never coveted your neighbor's anything? Who can honestly say you've never stole anything? Who can honestly say anything? Who can honestly say they kept the whole law? What's the Bible says? If you failed it in one point, you failed the whole law. 
That means you're not holy, so just throw it all out. It just means just admit it, you can't do it. The only person who ever fulfilled it perfectly, which is why he abrogated it, which is why he fulfilled it, was Jesus Christ. That's it. In the book of Galatians, where religious Judaizers were trying to put folks on a works program, Paul described the Mosaic Law as a temporary tutor or schoolmaster, or in the English Standard Version, uh, a guardian. Go to Galatians 3.23. Galatians 3.23. Again, we're just proving a point. This is still the sidebar, right? That all of the Bible is the mind of Christ. And we're just using the thread of the Sabbath. That Jesus' mind never changed about the Sabbath. An economy might have changed. Some people were under a Mosaic Law, and it was part of the Ten Commandments. But that still doesn't change his mind about it. Galatians 3.23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian, and that word is also translated. If you've got the New American uh, tutor or schoolmaster, it's a teacher, in other words. The law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In other words, we Christians in the church age are no longer under the Mosaic law. And unless a certain aspect of the law has been reiterated in the context of the grace economy of this time in human history, then you know what? It's not for us to concern ourselves with. Not that way. We don't have a Saturday Sabbath like the Jews did. We don't have it. Don't try to create it. Uh, don't make a works program out of it. If you want to rest every Saturday because you work hard every other day, that's between you and the Lord. But it has to be with integrity to the Lord, who said, work hard as unto me. Then take a rest. So the Sabbath is never commanded for believers in this age, hence the point on the board, uh, actually. Did I, I didn't put it back up there. Did you go to the church age? Christians are never taught to keep the Sabbath? All right. Well, I didn't put it back in, so imagine that there's a slide that says Christians are never taught to keep the Sabbath. All right. That was just a side example. We're almost out of time of the key principle the Spirit's been developing in our primary course of study back in Proverbs 17. Up here on the board, what's the, what's the principle? The mind of Christ. The Bible as a whole is the very mind of Christ. We don't just hear from Jesus Christ when we read red letters in our Bibles. The Bible is His Word, mind, thoughts, heart. All right, go back to Proverbs 17.5, and I'll pick a spot to close. Is it getting a little warm in here? A little bit? No, maybe it's just warm up here. Proverbs 17, verse 5. Hey, thanks for all the feedback, by the way. I literally got a bunch of deadpan faces. Is it hot in here? <laughs> Proverbs 17, 5. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. 
This is a consistent expression of the very mind of Christ. That's what all that was about. That if we understand the principle the Spirit just laid out for us, with an example, that all of this is the mind of Christ, it doesn't matter where we go in Holy Scripture. Right now we're in Proverbs 17.5. It reads, Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. This is consistent expression of the mind of Christ. Which, as we've been noting, makes perfect sense since his mind predates all of human history. Up here on the board, John 1, 1 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only, uh, only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. As we noted on Sunday, up here on the board, Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word is timeless, in other words. It predates human history. Jesus Christ has never changed his mind about stuff. <laughs> right? He's never liked mockery of his choices. And that's how we should generalize it. We say, wait a minute. If someone's poor, that's just a, a, a choice that God made for that person. I don't know why. Maybe they'd be arrogant otherwise. I don't know. Maybe he couldn't get them to himself because they'd be too puffed up with money. I don't know. Right? But we know we can't mock his choices. And his choices are eternal. His mind is set. You understand? He doesn't waffle. He doesn't waver. His mind is just truth. And when we think of the word truth, with a, I always put it as a capital T in my notes. When we think of truth, we think of it as an eternal, in an eternal way. It's always existed. His mind is perfect, immovable. We, in theology, call it immutable, right? So it just doesn't move. The word of our God will stand forever. I think the clear message the Spirit uh, sending this congregation is as we noted earlier. Up here on the board, mocking the poor insults God. To mock the creature is to insult the Creator, for it is the Creator who made the creature. To mock the crea uh, creature is to insult the Creator, for it is the Creator who made the creature. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word. Thank you for giving us all of the word, and thank you for reminding us that the entirety of it is the very mind of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We just ask your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, to our homes, and then your will be done out to a world that just needs the truth so desperately, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.